So glad Joel set that up. Yeah, I probably would have blew it up. Uh, looks like something you would use to find like radiation levels. <laughs> so if you have your Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 40, very end of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40. Our sermon text, I guess, is technically Exodus chapters 35 through 40, but we'll focus in on chapter 40, at the end of chapter 40 in particular. So, all right. So I'll begin with prayer, and uh, we'll jump in to hear what God has for us today from his word. So, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we are not alone, that your presence is here, that you are with us, and that when we seek to abide with you, we don't fail. You are there. You say, seek me in a time when I might be found. Now is the time. Now is the acceptable year of the Lord. Now is the day of salvation. And so we have sought you by your grace, and only by your grace have we found you. And so here we are, your children, Sunday morning, again, asking for grace, asking for help, asking for a word, asking for clarity. We are confident that you will answer. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. We humans are incredibly social. Um, we talk and write and we email and we share stories. And I was just thinking about thinking about how if you had like uh, you never you never see like a horse on a farm like sitting telling a story with all the other animals gathered around just intently listening, you know or. You, we, we get so excited when animals can do something like sign language, two or three words, you know? But, I mean, I'll get impressed when an animal writes a letter to an old friend, you know? That's, that's what we humans do. We are so unbelievably social. We are the most interactive thing, living thing on the earth. And there's no, there's no, sec, there's no close second place either. We're very interesting people. I mean, just look what you're doing right now. You're sitting, listening to someone talk. That is incredibly rare. If you look at all the living things in the world, that's incredibly rare. And yet, you do it like it's easy, because it is. <clears throat> but this desire to be interactive and have relationships brings complications with it. Um, I think we've all had some of these complications. I just made a short list here. Uh, making a new friends, making new friends in a new place, um, dealing with the pain of betrayal. Is that coming back up? I'll take it. Not only dealing with the pain of betrayal, but learning to say, I'm sorry. All these things that we as interactive creatures have to figure out. And, and another one, and this is where we'll really spend some time thinking about is 
whenever you meet someone that you haven't seen in a long, long time, maybe an old friend, and you just can't help but wonder, have they changed? Or have I changed? Or have we both changed? Have you ever had this? Like, I'm, oh, I can't wait to meet them. But what if it's not the way it used to be? You know what I'm talking about? And it's this idea of, uh, w will there still be a spark? Will we be okay? I think we've all had this before. And this morning's passage is a lot like this last situation. About, we're meeting again. Israel will be meeting God again in our passage. And some things will be the same. And some things will have changed since the last time they've met him and since the times before God's people have met God. And so we're going to be jumping into our passage now. I'll read just a few verses, and we'll start in Exodus chapter 40, and we'll look in verses 34, and I'll read through the whole rest of the book, which is not far. So Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord, or the cloud of Yahweh, was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during their travels. So where we are in the book of Exodus is, if you remember last week's sermon, Israelites and Aaron had this great idea that while, God, that while Moses was up on the mountain talking with God, getting the Ten Commandments and the other ordinances, they would build a calf and worship it was their great idea and have a party and do a bunch of pretty racy things at this party and it was really really bad and Moses comes down breaks the tablets right this is what you've done to the agreement you've broken it Moses goes up intercedes dear God please be with us don't leave us and God says okay I'll be with you go and build the tabernacle so I can dwell in your midst we reach Exodus 40 now. They've just finished the tabernacle, and what we just read is God has moved into the tabernacle. So we're going to be looking at these final verses most closely. And today what we're going to see about the tabernacle is we're going to consider three things. First, what's the meaning of the tabernacle? Second, what's the, the good and the bad news of the tabernacle? And thirdly, what's the hope of the tabernacle? So first we'll look at what is the meaning of the tabernacle. And then we'll go into what's the good and the bad news of the tabernacle. And I'll break the rules and I'll give you the good news first and the bad news second. And then thirdly, we'll say what's the hope of the tabernacle. Okay? And then we will end with our response to God's word. Okay? So the meaning of the tabernacle. So... We've talked about this before. It's funny. The, the, the sermons, I got, I got the tabernacle sermons. I feel like Joel got like all the really like exciting action sermons. <laughs> I get the tabernacle sermons, which, which are fine. So what is the meaning of the tabernacle? Well, most simply, the tabernacle is like a 
there's just two things you could say it is. It's a portable Mount Sinai, or you could say it's a portable Garden of Eden. What do I mean by portable? Well, first, the tabernacle is like a tent. You could put it up, and you could tear it down, and you could travel around with it. I wonder how many people it took to carry it, because a lot of that stuff was gold. must have been incredibly heavy. But if you remember, God came and dwelled on Mount Sinai, and how'd that go? People just so excited to see God up on the mountain. God says, come be with me. And they say, we're going to go the other direction, right? So God's going to tone it down and go in this portable tabernacle. So it's like God's glory on Mount Sinai. The burning fire is just going to come down in this little tent. God's going to like condescend and lower the level from like 10 down to 1 so he can be with his people. But what I would like us to focus on is something else. And this is where I have my... My assistant, Destiny, is going to help me. So if you could push the next button. I hope this works. Woohoo! I wanted to read some verses for you. And I wanted you to see that this tabernacle is not just like um, Mount Sinai, but better. It's the Garden of Eden again. And I've done this before you in my other sermon. But I only did that from chapters... Actually, Destiny, there's going to be like three buttons. So, yeah. Great. So I did this for you in my other sermon, but I did that all from chapters 25 through 31. But there's more Garden of Eden stuff now in chapters 35 through 40. And so here's the first one. In the top, you've got the Exodus verse. So Exodus 39, 32a. And all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed. Tabernacle and tent of meeting are like synonyms. You could say either one. Same thing. And look how similar that is to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. And all of the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed. It's incredibly similar. And these are my own translations up here, because sometimes translations miss this. So you see how similar that was? Okay. So God finishes creating creation, and he finishes creating the tabernacle. And it's very similar descriptions of how they're both finished. Let's look at the next verse. Could you push the next button, Destiny? Exodus 39, 43a. This is at the very end when they're finishing it up. And Moses saw all of the work, and behold, they did it. That sounds a whole lot like Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything which he did, and behold, it was very good. It's very, very similar. It's starting to wonder, maybe this isn't an accident. And the next one, very short and sweet, the very little phrase at the very end of Exodus 39, 43, very end. And Moses blessed them. Well, that's very similar to Genesis 1, 28, the very beginning. And God blessed them. And there's even another one. This will be our last one. I got the underlined portion here for you so you can sync it up. And he, that's Moses, set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up this curtain of the gate of the courtyard, and Moses finished the work. Exodus 40:33, Genesis 2:2. And God finished his work, which he did on the seventh day, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he did. Thank you very much, Destiny. So, what is the point of all this? Well, I want to give you an illustration to maybe help this make a little bit more sense. Imagine you and me are walking down the street, all right? 
and we see a building. It's a mystery building. I won't tell you what type of building this is. All right. We're walking down the street, and we look at it, and I ask you, I wonder what type of building that is. And you look at me, and you go, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm just trying to figure it out. And you look at me, and you say, well, there's a sign. It says open, and it's flashing on it. I said, okay. And then you say, well, in the other window, it says hot and ready. Still don't know what it is. I'm just slow. And then you point out, well, above the building, there's this banner. It says delivery or carry out. Okay. Some of you probably have a good guess what this is now. And then I'm still just struggling. I'm like, I don't know. Delivery or carry out? What is that? And then you say, well, look at that sign over there. Large two toppings, $7.99, Tuesdays. <laughs> And I'm like, I, I give up. What is it? And of course, you say, it's a, it's a pizza building, a Domino's. Uh, Hot and ready is actually Little Caesar's um, expression. But you know what it is. It's a pizza building, right? How do you know it's a pizza building? Because you're seeing all the language that pizza buildings use. You're, you, you, you've had the repetition of your whole life to learn that this equals pizza language. That is a pizza building. Well, what just happened is you just got a whole bunch of God creates the universe language. This tabernacle is like God's creation building. That's what it is. You see the pizza building language, and you go, that's a pizza building. You see God creates the Garden of Eden language, and you go, that's a Garden of Eden building. Which is very strange. But this makes sense, doesn't it? When did God have fellowship with his people? In the Garden of Eden. And now God is dwelling with his people again. We have been waiting for this for 90 chapters in the Bible. All right? Genesis is 50. Exodus is 40. 90 chapters we have been waiting for God to be with his people. And it finally happens. But just like whenever you meet somebody that you haven't met in a long time, sometimes things aren't always the way they used to be. And there have been some changes between the Garden of Eden and this Garden of Eden building. Some big changes. So to see this, we're going to look at the good news and the bad news of the tabernacle. Here's the good news. Verse 34 of Exodus chapter 40. The good news is that God is with his people. I mean, that's great news. It's so good to be in God's presence. So verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So you got to picture this. They've just finished putting up the courtyard. They've just set up the altar. They put up the curtain around the courtyard. They back out of the courtyard, right? They're like, get away. And then this cloud that's been leading them all throughout the wilderness, the cloud covers the top of the tabernacle. You see that in verse 34? It's like, it's like an umbrella over the tabernacle. And the glory of God fills it. It's incredible. Can you imagine seeing this before your eyes? This would be something. I mean, this would be a sight to behold. God's presence, his spirit, which has been leading his people, is in the midst of them now. And the second good thing is, God is leading them somewhere. You see this in verses 36 through 38. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, 
They did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travel. Where are they going? The answer is the promised land. God is leading them slowly to the promised land. And you actually get a special word for this. And I want to tell you what this word is. If you have your Bible, turn to Exodus 33:14. There's a special word God uses for the promised land. And it's going to be really important for our sermon today, especially when we think about how do we respond to God's word. So in Exodus 33:14, Moses is pleading with God. And God listens to Moses' plea. And God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. You see how similar that is to what we just read? God's presence comes with them, and then he leads them. Now he says in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, my presence will be with you, and I will give you rest. He's leading them to the rest. What is the rest? The rest is being in the promised land with God. That's what it is. God is leading them to rest by his spirit, by his presence. We will talk about this later at length. But hear me now. You want rest for your life? You want rest for your souls? There is only one way to have it, and it is by following the Holy Spirit. There is no other way to gain rest in your life. You will run yourself weary. You'll kill yourself trying to seek rest if you don't seek it by the Spirit. Okay, so that's the good news. God's with his people, and they are going somewhere. They're going to the land of milk and honey, the land of rest, the land where all their dreams will come true if they follow God, that is. But here's the bad news. Verse 35 of Exodus 40. Look at Exodus 40, verse 35. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. If you were to think through the book of Exodus, the whole book, this would be kind of an anticlimactic moment. Here's what I mean. Let me give you an example. Um, sometimes you get to the end of a story and it just doesn't go the way you wanted it to, right? You ever read the book, uh, or the short story, The Gift of the Magi? Yeah. Mercy has. Carol has. So I didn't brush up on it like I probably should have before this sermon, but I think I remember the gist of it. If I'm wrong, Mercy, you, you, you can set me straight, and I mean that. So here's the gift of the Magi. <coughs> There's this couple, husband and wife, and they're very poor. But what they lack in material wealth, they make up for in love for each other. They are crazy about each other. They love each other so much. And the wife, she has the most beautiful hair in the world, luscious, flowing, down to her waist, thick, the envy of every woman in the city, right? And the husband, well, he plays, I think it's harmonica, right? Or maybe I'm thinking of, I think I'm thinking of uh, the kids' version. We'll go with the Mickey Mouse version of uh, The Gift of the Magi. 
plays a harmonica, all right? And he has no case for it, though. And so they're looking to give each other a gift. I forget if it's their anniversary or Christmas or whatever it is, but they want to give each other a gift. So the husband's working away at work, and he just can't get enough money to get what he wants for his wife, which is braids and pins and things to make his beautiful wife's beautiful hair all the more beautiful. And the wife, she doesn't have enough money to give what to give her husband what he wants. And I, I forget what it is in the story. In the kids' version, it's like a it's a gold harmonica case for his harmonica. So what do they do? Well, the husband sells his harmonica so he has enough money to buy pins and ribbons and things like that for his wife's hair. And his wife cuts her hair and sells it. So she has enough money to buy his golden harmonica case. And that's how the story ends. <laughs> and you reach the end of the story and it is the sweetest but saddest story. And you're just left thinking, what, what was that? All their efforts were for naught. That guy worked. He had a tough job. He did terrible hours. He sacrificed. He sold his most precious gift. For what? That's the book of Exodus. Here's what I mean. Israel's in slavery, right? Getting whipped, getting beaten, babies being thrown into the Nile River. They cry out and God says, this is what I will do for you. I will send a deliverer. Moses shows up. Moses does miracles. Moses sends plagues all through, through Moses from God, right? Then God says, you know what? I'm going to break Pharaoh's will. He will let the people go. Passover comes. Sets them free. Then they're in a pinch at the Red Sea. So what does God do again? Splits the Red Sea. Lets them go. All so they can come to meet him on Mount Sinai so he can be with them. They grumble throughout the whole wilderness, and God forgives them, and forgives them, and forgives them. You see how much God is doing to be with these people? They reach Mount Sinai, and he says, come up here. And actually, it's a little tricky to know what's going on. But at the end of the story, they're not with God. That's for sure. So God's like, fine, here's a tabernacle plan. You can use these plans, and I'll be with you then. They're like, great, but before we build it, we're going to break all the rules and show you that we really don't care about you at all with a golden calf. And God's like, okay, that was a really bad move, but cheated on me on the hunt, cheated on me on the honeymoon, on the honeymoon basically, but I'll still let it go, build the tabernacle, and I'll be with you. He does all this. They build the tabernacle, he moves in, and verse 35, Moses could not enter. Really? That's the end of the book of Exodus. That's the end. What it reminds me of is, um, you know the kid walking down the road and he sees, walking down like the storefront and he sees the candy store? But his mom's gotta go, you know? Can't go to the candy store. But what's he do to the window? Walks up to that window, the little kid does what? Sticks his face up against the glass, right? And he stares at all that candy, and he just fantasizes. I mean, this is me. At the mall in Baton Rouge, they had candy store, and they had jawbreakers bigger than my fist. And my brothers and I would just gaze. We'd just like, 
I'm sure it's disgusting on the window. And we're probably the 20th kid who did it that night, you know, all at home <laughs> in the same place. We're just, we want to get on the other side. I want to enter in. We want to be part of the glory. We want to be part of the beauty. And we feel this deeply. And it's not just little kids. Think about it. Fall comes, and it is, it is beautiful, isn't it, when the leaves change? In fact, it's a little too beautiful. Because I don't want the leaves to fall. Why can't they just once stay and not die? Just once. Do they have to die? You think about this? They're so beautiful, and yet I look at them in their beauty, and I can't help but think, it won't stay this way. I just wish it would. Here's another example of how we want to get, we want the beauty to last. We want the glory to last. You go on vacation, and what do you buy? You buy a souvenir. Why? Because it's really going to help your life? No. It doesn't. It just costs nine bucks. It's overpriced. It makes your life worse financially. You want to hold on to it, right? You had joy and beauty and wonder on this trip, and you want to keep it. You don't want to lose it. You wish you could have it forever, don't you? The Stokes were here last week. We brought them to the slate quarry. What do they do? They pick up pieces of slate and they bring it with them. What are they going to do with slate in Minneapolis? I have no idea. <laughs> but they, 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 they appreciated the beauty of the slate quarry. And they said, we want, we want to hold on to this. Here's a quote from you that captures this. The, the good news, God's with his people. But the bad news, there's separation. There's separation. Hear this quote. I love this. This is from a philosopher named C.S. Lewis in a book he wrote, or actually a sermon he gave, called The Weight of Glory. And I resonate with this deeply. I think he's spot on. C.S. Lewis had a way of saying things that were, see, seeing things that were obvious and pointing them out in profound ways. Hear this quote. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. I find that to be incredibly true. Like, I wish, I wish what I'm seeing out there could get in here. So that way I don't have to say goodbye to it. And it wouldn't be this, like, me, you thing. It would just be us. Because that's what you get. You get to the end of the book of Exodus, and it's this us. I mean, it's this me, you thing. It's not us. There's still separation. Things aren't right. It's still not quite the Garden of Eden, is it? Where God and man are walking together. It's not quite there. And so this whole picture at the end of Exodus is letting us know this building is like the Garden of Eden, but it's not like it all the way. There's something waiting for us. There's something on the other side of this glass plant pane, and we can see it, but we can't get to it. What do we do? 
And this is the hope of the tabernacle. The hope of the tabernacle is looking beyond itself. It's looking to something else. Last tabernacle sermon I preached, I ran through this quickly. I'll run through it quickly again. We have already know that Jesus fulfills the tabernacle, which is also called the dwelling place. John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is the word, and the word became flesh, and he was a tabernacle among us. That's a literal translation of John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is a tabernacle among us. Where do you go to meet God? Jesus. Why? Because he's God. That's how that works. Why else would he be called a tabernacle? And this makes sense too. Remember back, verse of the month for Jan... Uh, no, this was last year. October or November. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Adam ruined the garden, right? It's all messed up because of the serpent. The devil ruined it. And God says, don't worry, one day things will get better. This boy will come and defeat the devil. Here's the logic. Adam ruined it by listening to the devil. Therefore, if you defeat the devil, you can fix it. That's the idea. That's the logic of the passage. Jesus defeats the devil. He fixes all the problems, which was our separation from God. With Jesus, we are united to God. He's like a tabernacle. He brings us to God. And yet, the hope of the tabernacle goes even beyond that. Turn to Isaiah chapter 4 for an incredible verse. An absolutely, a, couple, a few verses. Isaiah chapter 4. It's a very short chapter. Jesus is our tabernacle, and if you trust in him, you become a tabernacle. You trust in Jesus, God's spirit dwells in you. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord, and the branch in the Old Testament is always the Messiah. In that day, the Messiah of the Lord, Jesus, will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. This is not physical fruit. This is spiritual fruit that comes from Jesus. He is the vine, right? We abide in him and fruit comes. I mean, John's not making this up. Jesus isn't making this up. They get this from these texts. Verse 3, those who are left in Zion will remain in Jerusalem. They will be called holy. or They will be saints. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem where God dwells. Everyone who trusts in God, who's aligned with the branch, the Messiah, will be a citizen of this city called Zion. Verse 4. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. So during the age of the Messiah, verse 5 and 6 will happen. Hear this. I'm reading from the New American Standard here because it gets it most correct. Verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, assemblies as people, assemblies of people, will create over the assemblies a cloud by day. 
Okay, you hear this? What happened at the tabernacle? The cloud came over the tabernacle, and what went into it? The glory of the Lord. Here, over the people of God is a cloud by day, even smoke, and, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. You see what's going on here? There's a canopy. It's, just, it's all metaphorical. It's metaphorical, but it's beautiful. There's a canopy. It is the presence of God. It's the cloud that has led us. And what will be under the cloud? Not a tabernacle. What will be under the cloud? The assemblies of the Lord. Those who belong to Jesus. They are the place where God's glory dwells. Verse 6, best translated, and it will be a shelter. The canopy will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. The idea is that God's presence will protect us from what comes our way in life. Isaiah looks back at Exodus and he says, there's something better than just this you-me distinction. There's an us that will take place. Isaiah looks at this. In chapter 60, he says the temple will be beautiful. The temple is a building and the temple is people in Isaiah 60. It's together. Isaiah 60 looks at this. Isaiah 4 looks at this and he says, there's a day coming when you will get to enter into the building. You will not be the kid on the other side of the window pane looking at the beauty and the glory. You will be the beauty and the glory. You will have the presence of God with you, in you. You will be the sign that God is here. This is what Isaiah chapter 4 is saying. So we end the book of Exodus, and we've got the message is clear. God is with his people. The good news is that he's there and he's leading them to rest by the Spirit. The bad news is that they aren't united as deeply as they could be or should be. It's not quite the Garden of Eden yet. God is there, but they're not close. There's still separation. Separation because of their sin at the golden calf. But the hope of the tabernacle is that one day God wouldn't live in a building. One day he'll live in those who align themselves with Jesus. That's the hope. That's what Isaiah thinks when he reads the end of Exodus. So how do we respond to this? A few ways. First, I want us to just meditate on this idea that we are the tabernacle. We have become the tabernacle. In the last sermon I preached, I mentioned, there's no way to get to God except through the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Right? How are you going to get to him except through the tabernacle? That's where he is. And last sermon I said, Jesus is like our tabernacle. He's where we go to meet God. You want to meet God? There's only one way to meet God. Through Jesus. If you try to meet God through this way or that way, you won't get there. There is one door. His name is Jesus. And yet Jesus is not the only tabernacle. If we trust in him, we become the dwelling place of God. So what does that say about how to get to God? If you can only get to God 
by being with his presence. Where do you find his presence? Here. It's you. It's us. This is it. I'll put it this way. There is no thought in the Bible anywhere, no words in the Bible anywhere of a Christian serving God apart from the church. It does not exist. It does not exist. Why? Because the church is where God dwells. You want to be with God? You be with the church. It's that simple. You want to be with the Spirit of God? You meet with the church, because that's where the church dwells. To say that you want the presence of God in your life, and then to not dive headlong into the church is intellectual hypocrisy. It makes zero sense. Like I love that chocolate bar so much, I never eat it. What? I love the presence of God so much. I just love God so much. I'm not involved in a church. That's what you're saying. It makes no sense. You want God's presence, his joy-giving, life-giving, peace-bringing <coughs> presence. Where do you find it? Jesus. And where's Jesus' presence? Here. That's where it is. So if you know people who claim to follow Jesus and they are not part of a church, you tell them. You tell them. On the authority of God's word, you need to be part of a church. You tell them that. If you don't, well, you don't know those people, well, just look for them. I'll be looking for them too. That's first thing. Second thing. I want us to think about this idea of God bringing them to rest. Okay? He leads them by the Spirit to the promised land, which is called their rest. And this is something that I think we Americans need to really pay attention to. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you ask somebody how they're doing, if they don't say good, they probably say tired. <laughs> Aren't those the two standard answers? How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Tired. We always say good, kind of like upbeat, like good. We always say tired, like drawn out, like you're from Louisiana. Tired. <laughs> um, and there's good reason for that. I don't know if you're aware of the numbers of hours worked, but I think Japan, second closest to hours worked per person. I think we, actually Katie and I looked at this together when we were going through economics. I don't remember the exact numbers. I think the average American works like 150 to 200 hours more than the second closest nation, which is Japan four extra weeks of work on average. Like, no wonder we feel tired all the time. We work more than any other country in the history of the world since the Industrial Revolution, you know? Since, since like 1800 and on, right now, Americans are just, we're, we're way out of whack. And we always have been in America. We're hard workers. But what's that make us? It makes us tired. And work's not the problem. Work, work's not the problem. Work is good. Work is good. The problem is when we're tired, what do we do? What do I do? Where do we go to find rest? Where, where's our avenue of receiving rest? What channels are we looking at? We saw in our text today 
that rest came, reaching the promised land came, by following the Holy Spirit, following the presence of God. And this is our key. This is our answer. Do you want to feel more rested in your life? Do you want to feel like you have rest? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And that doesn't just mean prayer and Bible reading. It means inviting the Lord in on all the things you do. I was just blessed. Carl just told me this the other day. Carl's making the Great Wall of China out at his building. He's working on this, he's working on this wall. He is building this wall little by little. And one day I'm going to get to help him. This past weekend I couldn't. And he's working on this wall, and it looks beautiful and glorious. Wall of stones, right, between his property and Uncle Mal's property. And it looks great. You'd think they're on bad terms, huh? And this is what Carl told me just this morning. He said, People might think I'm crazy, but I enjoy doing this stuff. And then he said, why? And this, this was perfect. So I'm looking at these rocks, and I'm just thinking, God made these rocks. How long ago did God make these rocks? God made them all that time ago, and here I am, making a wall look beautiful with the rocks that God made so long ago, with the strength that God's given me right now. And I'm just thinking about it. I'm just praying. I'm just working on my, on my rock wall. You see what Carl's done there? He's turned what most people would find to be miserable work into time with the Lord Jesus. They've been united. It's hard to do. I'm terrible at doing more than one thing at the same time. It's terrible. But boy, I wish I were better. I wish all things I did, I could just do is thanking God. And if you can't do it at the same time, do it with all your heart, and then stop every so often and thank God for it. Say, God, I just thank you for that. Bring him into what you're doing. Because where God is, you find rest. He's the one who brings you into rest. So follow the Spirit. Be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, and self-controlled, and everything else. Follow his steps. If you don't live the life he has for you by his grace, you won't find rest. Where the Lord is, there is rest. So invite him into your daily work. Last thing I'd like to mention is something that's Ken prayed it this morning, Joel prayed it this morning, Joel mentioned it from the pulpit this morning. This idea that God loves to use his strength to help us in our weakness. You see, What's incredible about us being the tabernacle, we are the place where God lives, God dwells in our midst. What's so amazing about that is it means that no matter how inadequate you are, God is not, and he is with you. Okay, so you struggle at things, right? You're not perfect, right? You have flaws. Some that you hate, probably. Some sins that you wish would just die. Okay? You have just problems. And you can't fix them. But God is with you. And there's an image that Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verses like 7 and following, gives. Verses 7 through, 7 through like 12. And the image, and I love this image, Paul says that, we are like cracked pots. 
Okay. <coughs> Back then, they would have these pots, and they could easily get cracks in them, right? You didn't want those pots, in fact. You wanted the good pots. You wanted the ones that didn't have cracks in them. And Paul says, you are like a clay pot, and you've got cracks in it. But you've got something inside this clay pot. And what he says, he calls it the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Right? I think you can boil that down, and you can fairly say the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So how do we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ inside of us by the Holy Spirit? Now, here's Paul's point, and this is encouraging to me. If you had no cracks, the light would not shine through the cracks. You see this? You have the light of God in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And if you were perfect, no one would see the work of God in your life. Nobody. But you're not perfect. And you do have the presence of God in you, don't you? If you are in Christ Jesus. And so, in your weakness, in your cracks, in your frailties, in your attempts to do something, and they're worse after you tried than they were before you tried. <laughs> like, I do a lot of those. In all of your struggles, the glory of God shines through. And it's not just you as an individual, it's us as a whole church. We are small, right? We are weak. I love what Joel said earlier. No one knows about Granville. We are a small church in a town that nobody knows about. That's what we are. But that's not all we are. We are the residents of the living God. And in our weakness, his strength is made known and made clear and made seen. We are one giant pot with cracks in it. And what shines through, what works itself through our weaknesses and becomes our very strength is the presence of God. And so, hear me. You are God's dwelling place in Christ. And because you are God's dwelling place in Christ, that means that he can actually use us. Your friend who doesn't know Jesus that you're afraid to share the gospel to, or that situation in your life, okay? All these things that look hard and you're too weak to do it. God can do it through you. The book of Exodus ends with this hope that one day the distinction will be gone. And it is. In Christ, we are one with him. And one day, we will actually see God face to face. Which will be the best sight you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you help crack pots like me preach. Thank you that you help people like us hear your word, and draw strength from it. Father, we are not a strong church. You look at the checklist of things great churches have. We have not much, but we have the most important thing. We have your presence. And we love your presence here. 
and we feel your presence, and we draw strength from your presence. And so we say more and more, give us your presence, Lord God. May we feel your nearness. We thank you that we are your dwelling place, that your glory is in our midst. We pray that those who do not know you, when they come in our midst, would feel the presence of the Holy Spirit and be drawn to him. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.